what you had to say last time and what you're going to say next time is kind of dependent. And so I don't want to go and re-discuss last week, but it is kind of essential in the sense of it says, but beloved. So when you see the word but, most of the time it's, you're a wonderful singer, but. And then it doesn't matter what you just said, or you're a great friend, but. So most of the time when we have that word, but, it says, cancel out everything I just said. In this case, it is going to be a positive, but, but it's going to be different in the sense of what I said last week was, there's a lot of commentators who pastors who say that what we looked at last week about the difficulty in um, going from a couple of times ago from them not maturing to all of a sudden, what is apostasy and what's the results? And that you can't be renewed a second time if it's possible to lose your salvation. And then it says also that there are those perhaps in the congregation who may be those who are the type of soil that is thorns and thistles and they're not true believers. And a lot of commentators and pastors will say, well, he's talking to a particular group of people. He's talking to the unsaved and, and whatever. And as I told you, I don't think so. I think he was talking to, to everyone and he was teaching that apostasy is not something that you take lightly because if it were possible, you can't get saved again. Which is harsh, but he's trying to teach. And so the reason I again feel confident in my position that he was talking to everybody is because he says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. So one, he's positive. It's not the, you're great, but he's going, this is what happens if you are an apostate and if you're in that type of soil, but I'm convinced of better things. So if he were talking about the lost, then why would he be convinced of better things? Because they couldn't get resaved. So he said, here's the warning, but I don't think you're those people. I'm convinced of better things concerning you. Which again, in this letter, better is frequently discussed throughout the whole letter. Jesus was better than the angels. Jesus was better than Moses. And he's going to continue on saying that Jesus is a better high priest and that Jesus is a better sacrifice. He keeps going through things that are better. And, he, and again, so now he's saying to the congregation that he's speaking to, I'm not only hoping, but I'm convinced of better things. I'm convinced that you're going to finally get off the dime and start maturing. And I'm convinced that you are not lost. And I'm convinced that you're not apostate. And I'm convinced that you're not that type of soil that just wastes the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So he's saying, you know, I, I'm providing warning because I want you to keep moving on, but I know you'll keep moving on, which is, if you will, hopefully like many pastors who say, well, my congregation quite isn't where I'd like it to be, but the reason I haven't resigned is I'm convinced the congregation will move on. 
And so he's saying, I'm convinced that you guys are going to do better, even though we're having to go back to the elementary teachings of salvation. So he says, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love with which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So he's saying, God remembers what you're doing. And in this discussion, even though he doesn't quote it, what he's telling us is that while we are told we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and then, quote, unquote, love our neighbor as ourself, he's stating we're to love God. Well, as John tells us, well, how do you love God? Does he didn't need anything? You can't wrap your arms around him. You can't say, you know, God, you're having a great day. You know, good for you. We can't do those things. So it goes, how is it that we can demonstrate our love for God? And John tells us that we love one another as he loved us. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, God knows that you are caring for the saints, that you're showing love and ministering towards them. And therefore, God will remember that. This is how awesome our God is. Our God made you. Our God allows you to breathe right now. Every beat of your heart is because of God. God has also saved us. God has also given us gifts and talents and abilities. And I know some of you have worked very hard to hone those gifts and abilities, but I could work as hard from now until the end of my days to be a great singer. And I could be a little better than I am now. But Pavarotti has no fear of me because I don't have the talent that he has. Certainly doing work can make you better. And if you have talent, working hard can give you a more refined craft. But it is God who gave you the talent or ability. And then on top of that, God has told us what to do with it. And then if we do what we do with it, as he's told us, after receiving all these gifts and talents, and we have the right mind of, of frame of mind when we see him, and he goes, well done, we go, I'm an unprofitable slave. I only did what you told me to do. So he gave us everything, including our life and our breath and our talents and abilities. He told us what to do with them. And if we do everything we're supposed to do with them, the reality is we're only doing what he told us to do. This is how awesome God is. He's still going to reward you. Most of us don't think that way. If you do what I tell you to do, you just did what I told you to do. Your employer, if he goes, I want you to take this package and move it to the other room, and you take that package and move it to the other room, your boss is not going, well done, I'm going to give you a raise. Or here's a bonus. They say, no, no, you just did what I told you to do. But God says, not only do I give you all of these things, and not only do I instruct you on these things, and when you do what I tell you to do, I'm going to reward you. And so here we are told, God is not going to forget. So there are times that the church will forget that you spent all night making something so that vacation Bible school might be well, or that you practice and practice and practice on a special song so that you could bless the congregation. 
The church will forget all those things. God won't. God knows and sees and remembers what you do for him by doing for his people. God is awesome. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of the hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. He's telling us what you've done, God will remember. But because God remembers because you did something some other day doesn't mean we're to slow down. We're to keep on keeping on and we're to do those things with excellence and ability. Not just as we have this tendency when it comes to if we're going to get a grade or we're going to try to get a promotion or something, we're very diligent. But when it comes to God, well, plenty good enough. You know, I did at least, you know, I showed up to church. Yeah, I, I missed the first couple of songs and in the first part of the pastor's sermon. And when I got here, I watched my cell phone and checking out my Facebook page and how cool I am. Wonderful. I see. Think of the great saints that we either know or read of, whether it's in the Bible or some other book that you've read about, Billy Graham or whoever, and say, why is it there's so few Billy Grahams? We should be like that. We should have the passion and desire to be A++ when it comes to God, not plenty good enough. And I know those of you who are desiring to do great things can be very frustrated at the rest of God's people who just say, well, it's plenty good enough. Moses ought to be one of your great examples because he'd get frustrated like crazy. He kept leading the people of God. Not because the people of God were worth it, but because God is. So don't lose patience. Be patient. Be imitators of those. Paul says even to be imitators of him. I wish I could say be imitators of me. Maybe someday I can make that statement with full honesty. But when you see but then again, I guess I say, well, be imitators of me until you get to my position, not as pastor, but get to where I am spiritually, and then be imitators of somebody else. If you have to take a little baby, you say, well, you know, I can never be Paul. Okay, well, then be me. And then after you're me, then you can be Billy Graham. And then after you're Billy Graham, you can be Paul. Take steps, but keep on moving on. And again, how great God is, verse 13. When, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Think about this. 
God, when he gave the promise to Abraham, that he was going to, when Abraham was an old man and when Sarah was an older lady and was barren, not just an older lady, but she was barren. And God says, I'm going to multiply you. And, and if you can count the number of stars in the sky, you'll be able to count your descendants. And the scripture says, and Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. But God not only said, this is what's going to happen. He swore to Abraham that it would happen. And as I said, I find this interesting. He said, and he patiently waited. Well, that's why I love the, the Old Testament because it tells us, and it talks about how great a father Abraham was. But there was a time that Abraham tried to help God out. Sarah said, you know, why don't you uh, take my maiden and maybe God will bless through that. And, you know, for the one time he probably followed her, her advice, he probably shouldn't have. But he tried to help God out. But then he had to wait some more and wait. And then he told, uh, before this, he told the um, Pharaoh in Egypt that, that Sarah was his cousin, not his wife. And so he kept having to wait patiently for God to do what God had promised to do. But he, even in his doubts at times, patiently waited for that promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, with them an oath is given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. I want to stop there. It talks about here that when people are having a dispute, they swear by someone higher than them. So if you were to go to court today and be a witness, they would have you before you were to take the witness stand, raise your right hand, and they would say, do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give in, in the case now pending is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Now notice the next line, in our secular society. So help you God. They say you are to swear by a higher power, even though our culture says there is no God. But you are to swear by a higher power so that what happens if you lie, and it's a significant lie, they can prosecute you for perjury. You can spend more time in jail than the person you're testifying to if you perjure yourself because you swore by a higher power. But even in not in a courtroom situation, oftentimes, and, and the next two examples I'm going to give is generally people who are truth challenged to begin with. So they will say, I swear to you on a stack of Bibles. So what makes a stack of Bibles more holy than one Bible? But they're trying to convince you, I'm really telling you the truth. So I'm, I, I swear to you on a stack of Bibles or the other one. I swear to you on my mother's grave. And I love it sometimes, but, you know, your mom is still alive. You know, 
They can't even tell that truth. But, but somehow their mother's grave is, is sacred. And so I'm going to swear on my mother's grave. I'm telling you that I'm swearing on a power higher than me. And so they're trying to convince you they're telling you the truth by making these great statements. Now here God says, there isn't anybody higher. So I'm swearing by myself. I swear on my own self that this promise will come true. To show the heirs of the promise, the heirs of the promise, who are they? Us. He's not talking about Abraham. He's talking about the heirs of the promise. Us, those who believe in Jesus, the son of God, who came, who lived, who died, who rose again and is at the right hand of God, the father. We who believe that we are the heirs of the promise. So that to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God says, I can't lie. Because I am the truth. I'm not a truth. I am not your truth. I am the truth. And the fact of whatever I say, I cannot by my nature, by who God is, he cannot tell a lie. He's even greater than George Washington. Because I don't know if the cherry tree happened, but I know that God can't lie. So God, so by us, the heirs of the promise have been sworn to on God's own nature that he is going to do what God says he's going to do. And on top of that, God can't lie. So we can't even doubt, if you will. Because when God says it, it's done. And yet, we're always having to, well, God's sovereign. No, no. If God says something, it is. You don't need to believe it or not believe it. It is because God can't lie. So he tells us, but he loves us so much. He goes, you know, I know in your human relationships, you've all met people who prevaricate. That's a nice word for a lie. There's, you, you've been around and even, you know, you, you teach your kids not to lie, but, you know, some monster came in the middle of the night and ripped up their homework. You know, I, we've all been told things that we just know that aren't true. God says, okay, I know you don't know me at times because you don't have that total relationship that I want with you, but I can't lie. So because you don't know me that well, I also swear to you, it's true. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. When God can't lie and tells us something, and when God swears by himself he's going to do something, then that should be strong encouragement. You see, the world keeps saying that we have this faith that is blind. No, no, we have a faith that responds to what God has promised. At this point, we have realized, if you will, our salvation. I have been saved, I'm being saved, I'm going to be saved. But he's not back yet. I'm not in heaven yet. 
There's a lot of my loved ones and, and others of our friends and uh, who are in heaven and see him face to face. But at this point, we're living in faith and in hope. One of these days, we'll no longer need hope because we will see him face to face. But we should be encouraged, not just because God is sovereign, but because God swore it and God can't lie. So have this hope. Take hold of the hope that is set you. He's saying, grab onto it. Don't just let it be out there somewhere. There's a lot of times we'll ask for something for our birthday or Christmas. And we hope our family or our friends will get it for us. I'll give you a little story. I had, as a as a kid, had hoped and had told my mother and my, my brother, who was 15 years older than me, that I wanted this slot car set. Uh, some of you know what that is, and some of you have no clue. Uh, depends on how old you are. Um, back in my day, you didn't have to go to a slot car place. You could actually build, have one at home and had a little figure eight. And I wanted that. And I had hope because my mom and my brother were pretty good to me that they'd get it. So Christmas came and I'm all excited and hopeful that, that I would get this thought car. And then there's this box that's wrapped that's just the right size for a thought car set. And I'm excited. And I open the package, all excited, knowing that my hope is going to be realized. And it was a racetrack, but was one where you wind up the cars. Now, I was severely disappointed. My mother taught me well to be grateful for what you get. So with every ounce of ability that a eight-year-old could muster, I looked at my brother and said, thank you trying to look genuine and sincere. I'm sure I wasn't, but I was trying because I was taught better, but I was severely disappointed because it was obvious that I told them I wanted an electric slot car for my birth, uh, for Christmas. And after they got a little laugh and whatever, they brought out a different present and it was the slot car that, that I had hoped for. God's not like that. He's not waiting to get something on you and to have a little laugh. If he says, this is what you're getting. Now notice, no one promised me the slot car. It's what I had hoped for. But in our case, God has said, this is what's happening. Hope for it. I know you haven't got it yet, but if you hope for it, take encouragement because it's going to come because I swore it and I can't lie. So take hold of that hope. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. I hope both sure and steadfast. Now, what is the purpose of an anchor? The purpose of an anchor is so that the ship doesn't wander in the stream or how the, the waves are carrying it. It places an anchor so that the ship stays where it is moored. He's saying, take hold of this 
hope like an anchor so that it do, you don't drift off into unbelief, so that you don't drift off into um, heresy, that you don't drift off being something else, that you know that God is promised and that God can't lie. And so this prevents us from moving off him. It is an anchor to our soul. It is both sure and steadfast, which means if you took an anchor for a 25-foot uh, yacht and tried to anchor the Queen Mary, guess what? It ain't going to happen. But if you take hold of the anchor of that hope, it was steadfast and sure. You will not drift because it holds tight. And so it's steadfast and sure. We don't wander off. And which and one which enters within the veil. He's saying this hope that we have isn't just out floating in life. It's anchored to the one who's in the holy of holies, the one who's within the veil. When you see the term veil, it doesn't mean a veil here. It means the heavenly holy of holies, the separation mark between the holy place and the holy of holies, the separation where the priests and the Levites would go daily to minister and the place once a year that the high priest would go. So within there, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Notice this. As a forerunner for us. He didn't say on our behalf alone. He's there before we get there. But we too can be within the holy of holies. Because we are a holy priesthood, a royal nation. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, according to my time, I've got to stop here because we can't chew on too much at any one time. And, you know, you're all looking at clock and there's things you want to do and whatever. So I've got to stop here and cut it again. But notice he's going to, he's brought up Melchizedek before. He's going to discuss Melchizedek in greater detail next time. And so we'll look at him. But Jesus, as it says here, is a high priest forever. So it doesn't matter how long it'll take us to get there. Jesus is still there. You see the ironic priesthood. They would go into the Holy of Holies for a brief time, once to offer a sacrifice for themselves and then offer a sacrifice for us and then hightail it out of there. The scripture says that Jesus sat down in the Holy of Holies at the right hand of God, interceding for us. So you may live to, live to be 125. Jesus is still interceding for you. You may live to be 50. Jesus is still living interceding for you. 
Jesus is interceding for you the entire time until your hope is no longer hope, a reality. When your faith is no longer faith, it's reality. Steadfast and sure. This is what Jesus gives us. It's not blind faith. It's faith. It's not a substitute for what we don't know. It's for the fact that when we hear God speak, we take him seriously. We believe him. That is why I say over and over, the people who say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, are absolutely wrong. God said it, that settles it. It doesn't matter whether they believe it or not. If God told Abraham, you're... Descendants are going to be more than the stars of the sky. My unbelief is not going to stop it. Because he doesn't lie. So this week, and I'm sure you will, but if not this week, next week, if you have that difficulty, you're having that struggle, know that God has promised you He can't lie, and he swore upon himself. People might swear in court on him. People might swear on a stack of Bibles or on their mother's grave. But God can't swear by anything higher. But that's not even necessary, because if God said it, that's it. So when you're struggling, you don't need to say, well, God's sovereign. He's king. No, God is who God is. And I will trust him. And I will set my hope on not the situation. I will set my hope on him. And as long as you set your hope on him, you will not wander in the winds and the storms of life. But you will be steadfast and sure. And therefore, we are to build our lives on him. And all God's people said, Amen.